You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Over a year ago or so, we had a friend living with us uh, for a while, and her room was between uh, my two boys' rooms, and she kind of became their unofficial big sister. And, uh, and they did all the things like the siblings would do. They fought, and they cleaned the rooms together on Saturday mornings and shared a bathroom and all that. Well, one, one night I went in to tuck in my youngest son, Holden, and um, he had a bunk bed at the time, and I, I saw a little piece of money on his bed, and I was like, right, I mean, he has some money, you know. But then I saw this pillow, and I took off the pillow, and there was this pile of cash on the top bunk of his bed. And he was, you know, like six at the time or so. And I'm thinking, I don't know where he got this cash from. And I didn't say anything. I just kind of, it was all crinkled up and wadded up, and I just started kind of straightening it out and putting it on his bed, and he didn't say anything. He's just looking at me. I was like, Holden, this is a lot of money, buddy. He's just sitting there quiet. I was like, what are you going to do with all this money? He goes, I don't know. And this is what I can't figure out, because it doesn't really matter how much money he has. There's no way he could actually spend it, you know, without me knowing, without going to the store with him and that sort of thing. But in his little mind, it was just the having of the money that gave him so much joy. So I kept straightening it out, and uh, it ended up being more than I anticipated it being. Uh, I can't actually remember now. I think it was somewhere like $80 or $130 or something in that range. And finally, I said where did you get this money? You know, you're not going to be in trouble, buddy, because truth is, when I was his age, I did the same thing, pilfered a bunch of money from my brother and sister and got caught. I said, you're not going to be in trouble. I just need to know whose money it is in order to get it back to them. Is it mommy's money? Is it my money? And I said, is it Miss Kelly's money? And sure enough, uh, it was Miss Kelly's money, his new big sister. And so I said, listen, you're not going to be in trouble. We're just going to have to give this money back to Miss Kelly and apologize to her. Now, the person I really wanted to discipline was Miss Kelly. How did she not know that a pile of cash had gone missing? She's an adult. She's supposed to keep better track of her finances than that. Uh, But we had a little reconciliation moment, and then I had a little talk with Kelly about tracking her money and that sort of thing. (laughs) And there's so much in that story that represents so much of our own attitudes about money. And particularly just thinking about Holden, and it was something about just the having of it that brought him just so much joy and peace and hope. We've been talking about money all month, um, and the Bible has lots of great things to say about money and wealth. Uh, Money's not a bad thing. What the Bible warns against is the love of money. Uh, Thinking that money will somehow fix your problems. Serving money, setting your hope on money— You know, thinking that money will make your life okay is, Paul says, a trap. It's a snare. Uh, You think it will save you, and then you find out it was just bait, and you've been caught. And our culture, uh, in large part, has been caught. We fell in love with money. We thought of it as some kind of salvation. And I think we're coming to find, since 2008 anyway, that it's actually a snare. And so we've talked about spending and giving at length. We've talked about the problems we run into in those areas and how to, how to follow Jesus when it relates to our spending and our giving. And today, we're going to wrap this series up by talking about our savings, saving money. And this may be the area where we're in the most trouble, where we're most trapped. Now, part of the reason is because of our overspending, but it's not just that. Uh, saving brings this new emotion to the table. 
And so when we talked about our overspending and our lack of giving, you, you felt emotions like guilt. But saving's a different thing. Saving brings the emotion of anxiety to the mix. I read an article on CNBC just last week. It said that 25% of Americans are saving $0 for retirement, but nothing toward the nest egg. Uh, several studies indicate that only a third of Americans feel adequately prepared for like, long-term financial needs. And so retirement is this huge source of stress in our culture. I read a, just yesterday, I was at Cafe Medici looking at the Wall Street Journal, because let's be honest, that's the only place I'm going to read the Wall Street Journal when I have nothing else to do. Uh, address these myths of retirement, and here's the gist of it. You're going to have to retire earlier than you think you are. Uh, you won't be able, it'll be harder to get back into the workplace if you need to do that than you think it is, and you'll discover that you needed to save more than you thought you needed to save. Happy retirement. Uh, the savings crunch is more than retirement, though. The CNN Money Poll reports that 60% of Americans are really nervous about any kind of emergency that would happen in the short term. Because most Americans, about three-fourths of us, are just living paycheck to paycheck, and we're fearful of any kind of health emergency or house emergency that would cause us to need like some, a sum of cash because we just don't have it on hand. And so Americans are stressed, anxious, worried, about their savings or lack of savings. Based on the survey that we did with you guys a couple of months ago, I would say that savings is a point of stress in our church as well. About, if you take the average, we average saving about 10% of our income per person. That's actually really good. The national average is something like 3.5%, 4%, something like that. Uh, if you look under the hood a little bit on those numbers, what you discover is that actually we just have a few people that save a lot. Um, 50% of us save less than 5%. 20% of us, which is about the same, nationally save nothing toward long-term financial needs. When it comes to the subject of savings, I suspect that we are an anxious people. Now, I want you to take a note here. Uh, there are rich people and poor people who are anxious about money. And there are rich people and poor people who are not anxious about money. And so our anxiety about money is not about how much money we have, it's actually about our faith. See, anxiety is a misplaced hope in any case, but in this case, it's a misplaced hope in our savings. We we put our hope of security in how much money we have built up. We're anxious because we think our savings will save us. So the question for us is, how does the gospel apply to the issue of saving? Uh, and if that's a weird question to you, that you need to know that our aim as a church, our central aim is to help people and help each other believe the gospel more deeply and apply it to every area of life. And so we want to put the gospel at the center of every conversation and let it transform us. Let it change the way that we think and feel and act. And so we want to ask that question about this issue as well. Now, we also want to be very practical, and so if you look on page 7 of your liturgy, sometime after I'm done saying my important things, you'll notice that there's a financial peace class that we're offering that starts next week. We've been talking about it. Uh, This is your last week to register, and the purpose of this class is to give you some really practical tools and the help of a community to figure out how to manage your money in more wise and effective ways. I want you to do that. Uh, The gospel will call us to action, which we'll see in a minute, and you need some practical help to take those steps of action. All right, so wherever you are financially, honestly, uh, this would be a really good class. Uh, My wife and I have been going through it as well. Uh, 
But if that's all you do, if all you do is learn how to practically manage money, but you don't do it from the place of humility and power that only the gospel gives you, well, then you're just sort of mowing over the weeds in your financial yard. It'll look better for a little while, but the roots will still be there, and all the same problems are going to come back up. And so we need to look at what the gospel says. Here's a little gospel grid. Uh, Here's a way of thinking about any issue through the lens of the gospel, and we'll apply it to this issue today. But whenever you're thinking about any issue, the gospel always does four things, at least four things. It always confronts our way of thinking. Uh, The gospel is a a kind of upside-down reality. It's actually right-side up, but we've been flying upside-down for so long that when Jesus comes and speaks truth and reality, it feels totally upside-down. And so it will confront necessarily the way that we think about things, our basic assumptions about how life works. Uh, It also convicts. So it confronts the way we think, but then it begins to convict us of the patterns of sin in our life that are largely come from our ways of thinking. But it doesn't convict us to condemn us, it also comforts us. And so the gospel, the aim of the gospel is to convict us of sin so that we might come to repentance where we find true hope and healing and comfort. And then the gospel always calls us to action. The gospel is a very internal reality. It changes who I am at an identity level, but it always is connected to and has implications for action in my life. All right, so it it confronts, convicts, comforts, and calls to action. And that's what we're going to see Jesus do here on this issue of savings. Open up to Luke 12. Luke 12, this is such a great text. We could have done the entire money series in this text. So I obviously would not hit everything, uh, but I will give us some, some high points on the issue of savings and anxiety from this text. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, this guy on the surface seems to have a legitimate complaint. His brother has an inheritance. It's his brother. He should get some of the loot, right? There should be some division of the inheritance. Uh, But Jesus, first of all, it's not his job to sort that out. But he also sees something in this guy. Uh, Sees something in him like the love of money. The hope that this inheritance would fix all his problems. He sees him falling into the trap. And so he says, watch yourself. Be on your guard against covetousness. Uh, You see, this guy's brother is getting all this money, and he's looking at his brother, and he's thinking, I deserve that. It's covetousness. And Jesus is saying, no, life is not about that. Life's not about your gadgets or your house or your retirement fund. Those things aren't bad, but that's not what life is really about. See, that guy, like many of us, thinks that the good life is the one in which you don't need anything or anyone, not even God. Jesus is confronting the way that we think about savings. We think it saves us, and he's saying, no, it doesn't. I'll be honest with you. Of the three areas we've discussed, spending and giving and saving, this one is the most difficult for me. Uh, I spent the weekend reading all kinds of articles and I got trapped into, like, doing the retirement. I can't even look at a retirement calculator now without getting a little pit in my stomach. Those things will, will just frighten you to death. Um, 
I found that even as I was reading, I just stopped working on sermon. I just started thinking about my own life, and I started getting really anxious. It's overwhelming to think about what it would take to, like, be financially secure for the next 50 or 60 years. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to live to 100. The reason money has such, such an emotional impact on us, and I think this issue of savings is so emotional, is because it's directly tied to our vision of the good life, of the life that we want, that we think we deserve. And so we tend to think that life's about status and security and comfort and pleasure. And so we use our money for those purposes. And that's why this guy is so upset. He's not upset because his inheritance is being taken away. He's upset because his life is being taken away. At least that's, that's how he feels about it. You see, when you love money, you enter into a relationship with it. Have you ever seen Shark Tank? Mr. Wonderful has a relationship with money. He talks to it personally. And so when you love money, you talk to it, and it, it talks to you. And that's what happens to this guy. And this guy's inheritance has been saying to him, you need me. You lose me, you lose your life. You lose everything you've ever dreamt of. That's what money says to you. It says it'll save you. But Jesus says, what if life is not about stuff and self-sufficiency? You see how he confronts his thinking? He says, verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life does not consist of whether or not you get this inheritance. It's neither here nor there when it comes to what is life really about. He's asking the young man, he's asking us to reconsider our vision of the good life. I read this and I realize I'm just like this guy. Uh, From time to time, more often than I would like to admit, I find myself uh, playing a little game called What If I Won the Lottery? And I'll just start daydreaming about, I don't actually even play the lottery, so it's an impossible thing. It's just a fantasy. And here's here's how it usually goes. I think, okay, first thing I'd do with the bunches of money is I'd set aside money for, like, retirement. We'd be totally fine, just a little bit higher than our current standard of living. And then I'd set aside money for college, you know, wherever they wanted to go. And then for weddings, just all the stuff that I have no idea how I'm going to pay for when it actually gets here, the stuff I'm nervous about, I take care of that first in my mind. And then there's this other bunch of money laying around, and I start thinking about, you know, what we could do presently. Man, we could really finally fix up the house in all the ways Debbie wants to. We could get a new house if we needed to do that. Uh, We could get some nicer clothes. We could uh, go on some vacations. I just kind of start thinking about all the stuff that we'd like to do. I even think about giving. That, that, that gets in there after I think about the other stuff. I'm just like this guy because in my daydream, I think that money will make my life okay. I think that this money will save me in some way. In fact, the, the indicator of that is that when I'm having this little daydream, I am really calm. I have this peace when I'm thinking about how I would use this money. And then I, at some point I snap out of it and I remember that the fog light on my car is still duct taped to the fender because I don't want to pay to get it fixed. There's always a reality check eventually when, you, when you're talking about money. And this is the reality check that Jesus is giving this guy. He's saying, what do you think life is really about? We won't be able to deal with our anxiety about money until we're willing to evaluate our fundamental assumptions about what we want and how we hope to get it. So the situation is uh, you have this guy asking this question, He's fallen into this trap of thinking that money will make his life okay. And now Jesus will use this situation to teach the crowd that is gathered more broadly about our attitude toward money. And he, he actually goes to the complete opposite end of the spectrum to do it. 
he tells a little parable about a guy not who, who needs money, but a guy who has all kinds of money. Uh, look at the next verse, verse 16. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, the guy in the parable has plenty of money. Uh, Notice, he was already called a rich man before his fields produced plentifully. He already had a big house. He had a nice nest egg for retirement. Uh, He already had barns that were full of crops. This guy was set. But then he gets this financial windfall. You know, the rich get richer. So, what does he do with this windfall? Well, he tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones so that he can keep all of it to himself. And he says to himself, he says, soul. Notice how sort of deeply psychological this is. He tells himself in his soul, soul, we're good. We got so much stuff. We got more than we need. Just enjoy life. Eat, drink, be merry. I want you to notice that his ability to enjoy the present is directly tied to his sense of security in the future. Well, Jesus calls this man a fool. And in the Bible, fool is a pretty strong word. It's something like our word idiot, but stronger than that, maybe with some other expletives around it. He's not a fool because he has money. Uh, The issue is never about how much money you have. The issue is always about your attitude toward money and how you use it. And so in this guy's thinking, uh, his, his sense of it is that more money equals more security, and so he uses it to pad the cushion in his life. And it's foolish because it's misplaced hope. In the first place, money cannot save him or us. Can't save anybody, even if we have plenty of money, right? Even if your, your plan works out and you've got everything you ever thought you would have, it still cannot give you the kind of comfort and power and joy and peace and purpose that your soul really longs for. It can give you some version of it, but you'll find out it's not satisfying, and there are stories upon stories upon stories of people that got everything and realized they had nothing. So money can't actually save you. Second, money is temporary and volatile. Have you ever known a guy that is just checking his money all the time? Like his, his mood rises and falls with whatever the stock market is doing. He's like a surgeon who's watching the pulse machine on a guy he's operating on. Because in both cases, they think somebody's life is at stake. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is getting to here. The man in the parable's life is at stake. And that's the point. Money can't save you. Only God can. Well, let's bring it into uh, modern day. Two guys start a business. A product, really, but it does well. And it's acquired, and it's, it's a pretty nice, sizable payday for them. And so they do what any of us would do. They take some of the money, and they invest it. They, they realize, okay, look, at this amount that's invested at a 6% return, this will be plenty for us to retire, fine. And then they take some of the other money, and uh, they, they 
invested in like more short-term needs, right? So they're not going to have private jets when they retire, but they're going to have nice houses. Uh, they're going to have nice things. They're not going to worry about healthcare expenses, that sort of thing. They took another chunk of money and they started another business. And because they're smart guys, that did really well too. And that acquired, it was acquired as well and had a bigger payday. And so these two guys are looking at each other and like, man, we've already got retirement set up. Uh, we've got some short-term savings involved. We've lived pretty decent lives. Like, what are we going to do with all this cash? And they start thinking about all the stuff that they could do with it. And they end up buying bigger houses and getting nicer things and taking more vacations. They also put more money into the retirement because now that they've increased their standard of living now, they've got to have more money for later so they continue in the same standard of living. And they still had some money left over. So they bought uh, some land out in the hill country, the nice house on it. You know, just a, just a place for the families to go on the weekends and kind of just relax. One night they're out at the ranch and uh, all the, the, the husbands and the wives are sitting around a fire and the kids are playing inside and they're just looking at each other and they can't believe it. They got a nice glass of wine and, the, and one of them says, man, this is the life. And Jesus says, you're fools. You think this is life? You think money can save you? Look, all of this is fine, but it goes away. You go away. You should have put some of your money in things that last. It's foolish not to. The last verse in this text says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's really what Jesus is getting at in this teaching. He wants to know, where is your heart? Is it with me? He's asking. What is your life aimed at? What do you want? And to be honest with you, that question is not as subjective as we would like to think it is. There's actually one really objective measurement, and that is, where's your money going? If you want to know where your heart is, look where your money flows. And that's what Jesus is asking. He's not saying, I don't want to hear from you where your heart is. I want to know what your, where your money says your heart is. Because where your treasure is, your heart's always there, for real. So look, the gospel convicts. It cuts right to the heart. But not to condemn us, but to lead us to repentance. This is where Jesus goes next, verse 22. So he says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Uh, let me stop there for a sec. You know, he's talking about basic necessities, and for most of us, we always struggle with this kind of text, and we think, yeah, I, I've got all I need. And more. I mean, I have a refrigerator because I have more food than I need. I have storage closets. I have all kinds of things because I have too much. And so it's hard for us to think of this text as relevant. So let me just say this. Um, the real world, this is very relevant. Like, we have friends in Guatemala who will go to bed tonight in a tin house, if you want to call it that. And they will wake up tomorrow not knowing how they're going to give three meals to their family. And they will work hard, and they will trust God and pray just to provide for them what they need for that day. And so that's not a guilt trip for us, but it is a way for us to look at the text and just take comfort that God cares for our friends in Guatemala and for billions of people who live in a world that, that we have never lived in. This is what the world's actually like. But here's how it does relate to us. 
Uh, So much of our anxiety has to do with what we've come to define as necessities. Uh, You just look at the sociological research, the the standard of living in our country has escalated at such a a fast pace that it's become really difficult to distinguish what's what's a need and what's a luxury. Uh, I read this New York Times article, and this article is from 1998. And sometimes when you read old stuff and it sounds like it could have been written today, you realize just how true this thing is. Here's what it says. Uh, Throughout the 1980s and 90s, I realize some of you were not alive, uh, most middle-class Americans were acquiring at a greater rate than any previous generation of the middle class, and their buying was more upscale. By the end of the 1990s, the familiar elements of the American dream, uh, a suburban house, a white picket fence, two cars, and an annual vacation, had expanded greatly. The size of houses has doubled in less than 50 years. There are more second homes. Automobiles have become increasingly option-packed. Middle-income Americans are doing more pleasure and vacation travel, and expenditures on recreation have more than doubled since 1980, when this article was written in 98. It reports, at a minimum, the average person spending increased 30% between 1980 and 1995, and at a maximum, by taking into account possible bias in the consumer price index, the increase was more than twice that, 70%. So, in this 15-year period, spending had increased somewhere between 30 and 70%. It goes on to say, yet, by the mid-90s, America was decidedly anxious. Many households felt pessimistic, deprived, or stuck, apparently more concerned with what they could not afford than with what they already had. This is the author's words. Definitions of the good life and even the necessities of life continued to expand even as people wondered how they would pay for them. Well, that just sounds like today. And if we just look at the history of it, it's actually worse today than it was then. I just want to tell you, I've read so much material in the last month on money and finances. And in my mind, I've tried to just boil it down to a few things. Like, okay, Lord, how do I just apply some of this? And on the short list of key things, there's one thing that always shows up. And that is our standard of living. How we define necessities and luxuries. When I think about, and when Debbie and I talk about changes that we want to make in our own house, our spending and our giving and our saving, uh, for me, it just always comes down to how we are willing to define our standard of living. We can make little changes, but to make big changes, that's always the crux of the matter. Most of us have been highly conditioned by the American ideal, the American dream of independence and um, what, we, what I would call reasonable luxury. Uh, because the reason we're okay with our luxuries is because we look at other people who have more luxuries, and so we think our luxuries are reasonable luxuries. Does that make sense? And so our vision of the good life is to enjoy a reasonably luxurious standard of living until we die. And we hope to get that life by getting enough money. Now, do you see the trap? Our vision of the good life is contingent on having enough money. We think, truly, our savings will save us. In reality, our savings or our love of money enslaves us. It produces anxiety in us. And uh, you all know this, but anxiety and stress is one of the leading, leading causes of sickness in our culture. And so the irony is that we're so anxious about, anxious about getting this good life that we want someday that it's actually deteriorating the life we actually have. 
money has made us fools. But Jesus comes with good news. Verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, there's more to life than stuff, than an increased standard of living. There's more to life than a financial cushion. There's a transcendent reality of God and His kingdom. Life's about knowing God and being a part of His people and being a part of His work. And that is so extremely comforting because you don't necessarily need money for any of those things. What it means is that we can get off the treadmill of competitive consumption. That is, just trying to keep up with our neighbor's standard of living. And we can just enjoy all that we have right now in Christ. It's so comforting. Have you ever uh, noticed that telling someone not to be anxious doesn't help them at all if they're anxious? Over a decade ago, Debbie had a panic attack, and we were out in the, this cabin in East Texas, didn't know what to do, and so rushed her to the ER. She hooks up to the machine, and I mean, her heart rate is just going nuts. And this nurse comes into the room, and she looks at it, and she taps Debbie on the She goes, honey, your heart rate is just going crazy. You need to settle down. And as soon as she says it, I'm looking at the machine, and her heart rate just goes way up. And I'm just freaking out. Like, what is this nurse doing? And so you have to ask the question, like, well, is Jesus like that nurse? Because here are some people who are freaking out about money, and he just says, hey, don't be anxious about money. What's he doing? Well, I think he's discipling us. I think what he's saying is, look, if you put your hope, your trust in money, you will be anxious. It's not reliable. It can't save you. You need to put your hope in that which lasts and truly satisfies something like the steadfast love of God. So the root of anxiety, at least when it comes to money, is thinking that we're all on our own, that life is entirely what we make of it. And the good news that Jesus brings, the comfort that he's offering in the gospel and in this text, is that God, your Father, is with you all the time, everywhere. You're never on your own. He knows what you need, and he delights to give it to you. Some of you need to let that sink in. It's not that God's able to give it to you. It's not even that he's just willing to give it to you. God delights to give it to you. Like, like a dad delights in providing for his kids. So, finally, the gospel calls us to action. And when Jesus calls us to action, he's not saying, this is how you get God's love. This is how you get God's peace. This is how you get God's provision and favor. He's saying, no, this is how you show in your life that you already have it. This is how we know that you have already let it sink in that God loves you and delights to provide for you in this thing that I'm calling you to. And it's at the end of the text. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, it's a little counterintuitive because here are a group of people who are worried about not having enough stuff, and Jesus said, okay, well, here's a solution to that. Sell some of your stuff. 
No, you didn't get it. I'm actually worried about not having enough things, so I'm, I'm looking more for addition and not subtraction here. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I know, so sell some of your stuff, and then take the money and give it away. And you've got to be thinking like, no, Jesus, what are you, why are you going after my stuff? I have stress. Stress is the problem. What, how is my stuff related to my stress? Why are you trying to take my stuff away? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not trying to take your stuff away. I'm trying to take your stress away. And it turns out your stress is really related to your stuff. So give some of your stuff away. Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about money because you have a father who knows what you need and who is committed to taking care of you. And then he's saying, the only sure way to know that you believe that deep down is to sell your stuff and give some money away. That's the only way you know that you're not tied to it. See, because I can say all day long, God is my father and he provides for me. But if I'm stingy, and I hoard, and I don't give, and I'm nervous and anxious about how I'm going to retire, I don't truly believe that. Not functionally. And Jesus is saying, look, here's how you know. What are you willing to let go of? That'll tell me how much you're willing to trust God. Now, think about this command in context. It doesn't actually say, give your money away. Uh, That would assume that you have some discretionary income to give, and the disciples, I don't think, do. In fact, in this culture, it wasn't like people just had cat. I mean, most of their wealth was, was in their land and in their produce and things like that. And so, for the disciples, uh, if they're going to give money away, they're going to have to sell some of their stuff. Right? And so, this is going to dip into their assets and their savings. See what Jesus is getting at here? I think he would say to us, look, I know you have a bunch of discretionary income and you can rearrange your budget and give some stuff, but what I'm wondering is, do you still hope in your savings? Do you still think your savings will save you? And I guess the only way to know that is, is are you willing to sell some of your stuff, decrease your savings even if you need to? That is, lower your standard of luxury to meet needs of people around you. Are you willing to do that? The principle here, in John Piper's words, is that disciples of Jesus would would move toward simplification in their life, not accumulation. And so if you think life consists in the abundance of your possessions, you you will accumulate stuff. But if you think life is about knowing God and joining His work in the kingdom, then you'll simplify so that you can give, because you'll you'll be wrapped up in what God's doing in His kingdom, not yours. When I think about this call to action, which I have given some thought to over the past few weeks, uh, it's difficult for me because I'm thinking in like large things. I'm thinking like significant change. And so I'm thinking with, with Debbie, how do we lower our standard of living in a significant way that would actually enable us to, to give more? And uh, you know, it's not like we have a ton of margin to work with here, so it would be like drastic things. And it always comes down to the house. It's always like, well, okay, this is a big expense. So either we would have to sell this house, and not just like for one slightly less, but like significantly less. We'd have to change like parts of the city to do this. And so that's an option. Or uh, we would have to get really aggressive about paying this house off a lot sooner than our 30-year mortgage would have us do. And that would affect other areas of our budget, and so we'd have to lower standard of living in other areas so that we could be wiser here, so then in the long run we'd have more money to give away. And you just want to get down to the nitty-gritty, that's just one thing that Debbie and I ha- like don't really want to mess with is our house. It's not even that we particularly love our house. It's just hard to think about how to do it differently. 
It's a huge change. And so I think in huge terms, and I get really paralyzed, Debbie is much more practical. She thinks of things she can actually do. And so she's been sitting on this Christmas money that her family gave her. Uh, It's not a ton of money, but I don't know, a few hundred dollars, maybe. And uh, she's had it since last Christmas, and she's been thinking since then. Like, what does she want? Does she want a a kayak, a stand-up paddleboard, some new clothes? What is it? What is she, you know, all the things that she's into. And last week, she just goes, you know, anything that I would get with that is a pure luxury. Absolutely don't need it. My life is fine without it. And we've made this friend recently who has some real needs. He's kind of entering back into uh, the outside world as of late and has some real needs. And Debbie just said, you know, I think I'm just going to take the Christmas money and get some stuff that he needs. It's like, oh, that's real. So you're actually going to do something. That's great. I'm just going to think about doing stuff. I think at the heart of it, this is what Jesus is asking us about our, our savings, about the extra money we have that we could put into savings even. I think he's saying, are you willing to just lower your standard of living in some way, in big ways or even in small ways? That is, just give up some luxuries to meet the needs of people around you. This is what demonstrates that we really do serve God, not money. You can't get away from it. It's on the short list. Standard of living and giving. You can't get away from those two things. The call to action is not something you do to get God. It's it's something you do because God has already given himself to you. And I want you to notice, before Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the poor, I didn't read it, but here's the verse right before that. Verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's so pastoral. I'm about to tell you something that's going to be really hard. But before I tell you that, I want, you, I want to say, look, I know it's hard. I know you're going to be afraid. So let me just tell you, now, don't, don't be afraid. This isn't a command as much as an invitation to rest in him and, and to not be afraid. And the reason is because your father, your shepherd, your king, all those metaphors are coming into this one little verse, cares for you. And it's his, his delight to give you the kingdom, this transcendent reality that's going on all around us that has come in part and will be fulfilled someday. That is, the riches of all God is and all he has are yours. And we know that because God has so freely given us his son so that we might be reconciled to the father and he's given us his spirit so that we might be united with the son And so if we are in Christ, we are co-laborers with him. We are co-heirs with him. We inherit the kingdom, the riches of God's grace. Retirement does not start when we stop working. That's an American ideal. When you leave the marketplace, you know what you'll still have? The kingdom. And your father is always at work in the kingdom and has prepared in advance works for you to walk in. And you will labor with Christ joyfully in the kingdom until you die. That's when retirement starts. And that retirement fund, I promise you, is absolutely secure. Locked up like government bonds at a much higher return of rate. It's a purse that doesn't have holes in it. It's a treasure that can never perish, never be taken or destroyed. 
Now, we're prone to act individualistically to kind of read this this way, but just notice he says flock or a community. It's part of what it means to inherit the kingdom. It means we inherit the kingdom community. One of the reasons that we're so nervous about money and especially about giving is we, we, start, to, we start to think, wait, if I do this, if I step out, will, will anybody take care of me? How, like, how will my needs get met? And Jesus is saying, because you're in the people of God. You're in a community that is no longer self-absorbed and preoccupied with securing themselves by their own means, but is actually because of the love of Christ that's been poured into their hearts thinking about you. They're actually motivated and, and desirous to help meet needs in their community. And so God is saying, I mean, Jesus is saying, trust the Father. He knows what you need. And the evidence of that is that he's putting you in a loving community that will care for you practically. This is what you see in Acts 2 and Acts 4. The Spirit comes down. Uh, they are enraptured with the presence and the power of God. And one of the applications, or one of the things that happens is, nobody thought of their stuff as their own. It wasn't that it wasn't their own. It's not like socialism happened. It's just that in their attitude, nobody thought of their stuff as being their own. Yet they, all, they had everything in common. And all that means is, if you have needs and you're in the kingdom community, my stuff's your stuff. We look out for each other. And when I have needs, you'll do the same for me. The gospel humbles our pride so that we can receive help like that. But it also heals our anxiety about money so that we'll be able to give when it's our turn. That's why we need it so bad. So look, this is a, it's not a difficult thing to understand. It's a really hard thing to rest in. And so I'm going to just end this way. This is a little different. I just want to reread this text. And maybe it'd be helpful for you just to close your eyes. I want you to meditate and let these words sink in about our good Father. I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, those dirty birds. They never sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? If then you're not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Don't seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink. Don't be worried. All the nations of the world seek after these things And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom.
Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.